Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP, Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by the NC State University Genetic Engineering and Society Center, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live-streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu slash GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced development of uh, classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at www.genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. This week on Radio and Vivo, it is my great pleasure to welcome a physician scientist from Duke University, Dr. Dwight Coburl, who is a practicing pediatric medical geneticist. He and his research partner, Dr. Priya Kishnani, have been working for many years on rare genetic disorders in infants and children and have made some startling discoveries along the way that are having a significant impact on their patients and the larger world. We will go into some detail about one of their current projects, a human clinical trial of gene therapy for Pompe disease, a rare genetic mutational disease that is often fatal in the infants and children who are born with it. Unfortunately, Dr. Kishnani was in, unable to join us today, but we will talk about her in her absence. Dr. Dwight Coburl is a professor of pediatrics and a professor of molecular genetics and microbiology at Duke. He attended Carleton College and then received his MD and PhD degrees from the Mayo School of Health Sciences in 1990. He serves as medical director for the Pediatrics Biochemical Genetics Laboratory and sees patients in the metabolic clinic. He and his colleagues have been working for many years on developing gene therapy treatments for inherited metabolic disorders, including Pompe disease and several others. Dwight Coburl, welcome to Radio In Vivo. 
Thanks, Ernie. Thanks for the invitation. Well, first, I want to hear the background story behind much of what you're doing and, and you've done in the past. But by the same token, I don't want to bury the lead in this instance. So why don't we begin our conversation with the clinical trial of gene therapy for Pompe disease, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's right. Okay. Uh, tell us about the clinical trial that is now in progress. Yeah. And so, Ernie, as you mentioned, uh, we've been working on gene therapy for Pompe disease for a couple of decades now in our division at, at Duke. Um, the trial we've started um, is um, NIH-funded. Um, our goal is to test the safety and potential activity of gene therapy for Pompe disease. And, and gene therapy is a new treatment for Pompe disease that we hope uh, might improve upon the current, the current treatment that's available. Um, so we've, we've started this study uh, start of the year, and it's underway and, and moving ahead. Wonderful. Well, uh, let's step back and tell us a little bit more about Pompe disease itself. Mm -hmm. you know, Pompe disease is an inherited deficiency of an enzyme. Uh, this enzyme is, is very important. Um, it, it's called acetylfoglucosidase, or GAA. And so what GAA does normally is break down glycogen or, or stored sugar um, in all the cells of the body. Um, GA is particularly important to muscle and heart um, because in, if GA is deficient, then glycogen builds up. This occupies space in the cells in muscle and heart. And, uh, you know, because the heart and muscle have such a fine architecture, anything that takes up space will disrupt the function. So the result of having Pompe disease is muscle weakness and a severe form, even heart failure. I see. And it's, it strikes um, very much in very small children and infants, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the severe form will cause symptoms in the first year of life, almost from birth. That's called infantile onset Pompe disease. Mm -hmm. And this is the form that involves the heart. It causes enlargement of the heart and poor function. And if it's not treated, it will cause death by around the first year of life. We know that from history uh, before there was treatment available for Pompe disease. And there's, there's another form of uh, infantile uh, Pompe disease that uh, the, the children live a little bit longer, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a variant infantile onset Pompe disease that doesn't involve the heart, and those patients will have symptoms in the first year of life, but they, they live longer. The, the heart is the most severe and life-threatening uh, life involvement from Pompe. I see. And there's a third form uh, uh, called adult onset, right? Yeah, adult or, or late onset Pompe disease. And the terminology is evolving nowadays. Um, you know, any patient who doesn't have the heart involvement is uh, termed uh, to have late onset Pompe disease. But what this describes is a patient who will certainly survive past infancy, um, and then they will gradually develop uh, muscle weakness uh, later in life, and that can occur any time from childhood to even late adult years. I see. Uh, and it's an, an exceedingly rare condition, isn't it? Yeah, it is rare, although we're learning that's a bit more common than initially thought. So we had an estimate, um, just from counting up the number of patients, of uh, about 1 in 40,000. And it turns out, um, based on newborn screening data, um, from recent years that it's more common, perhaps about 1 in 20,000. I see. Very good. Uh, how, how is Pompe diag diagnosed? Uh, is it with presentation or, as you just mentioned, with newborn screening? Yeah, both ways now. And, and so, um, you know, let's talk about uh, historically it was diagnosed from patients who had symptoms that suggested to their physician, if they knew about Pompe disease, uh, that, that they might have the diagnosis and then the testing would be done. And the symptoms would be something like perhaps a, a baby having an enlarged heart that's so enlarged uh, that the chest X-ray uh, tells the radiologist this, this could be one of two things, one of them being Pompe disease. So, so um, it was a striking diagnosis, and the informed physician could, could uh, suspect it and confirm it. Now, for the late-onset Pompe disease, it has been difficult to diagnose. And so you can imagine a person with gradual-onset progressive weakness, so they have more and more difficulty walking, 
for some patients, but not all, involves the muscles used for breathing, the respiratory muscles. So they can have increasing uh, difficulty uh, with breathing. So, so either kind of symptoms is fairly nonspecific. It might be thought of as a muscular dystrophy. And then actually uh, specific testing has to be uh, obtained for Pompe disease. So, uh, you know, there's more and more awareness, though, of Pompe, and the tests are being done more often. So diagnosis by symptoms is happening, and we're seeing more, more and more patients are diagnosed earlier in life with less delay. Now, newborn screening is an entirely different situation. And... Um, Newborn screening has been recommended uh, by a national panel that um, reviews, you know, what conditions will, uh, will have newborn screening. Newborn screening consists of uh, taking a blood sample from every newborn baby, sending it to the state health laboratory, and running a battery of tests. And Pompe disease has recently been added to the uh, recommended universal screening panel. And so now states are adding Pompe disease to newborn screening as they're able and, um, you know, across the country now, uh, states that are performing this newborn screening are finding these babies uh, before they have symptoms in the first weeks of, of life. And uh, as I mentioned, from that newborn screening, uh, which will almost universally identify these, these affected children, the incidence is now about 1 in 20,000 or twice what we thought it was previously. Uh, that, that is eye-opening for sure. How, so... With that early diagnosis from the newborn screening results, mm-hmm. how does that affect uh, treatment and therapy and longevity? Yeah, that's a really important consideration. So, uh, you, you know, for for patients who have the heart involvement and where we could see the heart is enlarged, they have pompa disease that's infantile onset, they get immediate treatment. And the treatment is even earlier uh, through newborn screening. Um, but for patients who have late-onset pompe disease, um, it's really intriguing and challenging to try to decide when they should be treated. So certainly, you know, a patient who is, uh, you know, say an adult and they have clear muscle weakness, they would get the, the, the treatment. But for these you know, children uh, diagnosed in infancy with pompe disease, that's the late-onset form, um, we ha- we'll monitor them closely, look for signs of weakness, any signs um, that there's ongoing muscle damage, and then try to gauge the, the, best, uh, chan- uh, the best timing for opportunity. So it uh, presents both uh, a challenge to decide when to treat and then an opportunity to treat earlier than would have been possible before and probably have a greater benefit. I see. Well, uh, you and Priya have actually been treating pumpy disease for many years now. Uh, what has that been like in a disease that is really so devastating? Yeah, yeah, and I have to mention that that Priya Kishnani has really led that effort. So um, it started out with clinical trials um, at Duke um, in babies with Pompe disease um, in the early 2000s. Uh, the reason it started at Duke is that our former division chief, Y.T. Chen, uh, developed the enzyme replacement therapy in his laboratory, and then he started the first clinical trials. Um, so uh, Pri actually stepped up to lead those clinical trials, um, and a company um, moved in Genzyme to help sponsor the therapy. So we saw from you know the first babies who were being treated that they lived longer than a year of age, uh, their heart uh, functioned better, and it's been just really remarkable to to see that this uh, this new therapy, enzyme replacement therapy or ERT, is life prolonging and has really changed the world for for these patients with pompe disease. And that came about around two thousand six. Yeah, the correct? FDA approval so that uh, the enzyme replacement therapy could be prescribed. Um, it's uh, myozyme or lumozyme. Uh, um, as it's known, and, and since then it's been available, and it's available for la- uh, patients with late-onset pompe disease, and it, it helps them a, a, as well by uh, preserving their muscle strength. So is the enzyme replacement therapy, is that the, the current standard of care for these patients, not including your gene therapy? Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so, uh, you know, it's it's actually the comparison for for our study of new therapies. Now, we're motivated to develop new therapies for Pompe disease because we recognize that enzyme replacement therapy is life-prolonging, but it doesn't completely uh, reverse the effects uh, in the muscle. And we, all, we can also tell from our experiments um, and our, from our research 
that enzyme replacement therapy doesn't completely correct the GA deficiency, which causes pompa disease in the muscle. And so we then work to develop these new treatments like gene therapy, and we can see in our experiments that they're comparable to or most likely superior to enzyme replacement therapy. And then we've gradually been able to initiate clinical trials to test gene therapy and to, um, you know, attempt to validate this in, in our patients. I see. Uh, I want to spend just another minute or two on the enzyme replacement therapy. Though, Certainly. Uh, before we get into uh, great detail on the gene therapy, uh, you started to go into the drawbacks of the enzyme replacement therapy, even though it is really a life-saving uh, treatment. Uh, I, I understand not everybody responds to it and that it's burdensome even in those who, who it do, do respond. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and what... Um what tells us that is, uh, you know, we see in some patients that they they remain weak, and and this uh, causes different kinds of problems. Uh, like for children, they might not walk or run as they should for their age. They may even have problems with uh, uh, with their vision uh, related to eye muscle involvement or their swallowing uh, related to you know the muscles involved in swallowing. Um, they can even have difficulty with breathing if they have a really poor response to enzyme replacement therapy because their respiratory muscles are weak and they, they require, you say, a, a ventilator. Um, so, so we've seen these limitations, and it's similar for the adult patients with late-onset pompa disease, but their symptoms are less severe. What we see is that uh, you know patients will have an initial response. Uh, they'll walk a bit better, although not entirely normal, um, if their respiratory muscles are involved, they'll have improved breathing, but not completely normal. And then after that initial improvement, there tends to be a plateau where they don't get much better. Um, and then after a few years, actually, their symptoms can progress. And, and you know, although it's unusual, we know of patients who've progressed, you know, even to respiratory failure, uh, even uh, early death, despite receiving enzyme replacement therapy. So we could see these limitations and know that there's room for improvement. I see. Excellent. Uh, well, Dwight, now that we have some good background information about the disease and the, the state of the science, let's talk about gene therapy for Pompey and the clinical trial that you have going on currently. Would you give us kind of an initial overview of the trial itself? Yeah. And we're enrolling adults with late-onset Pompey disease um, we are selecting for patients who are healthy enough to be in a research trial um, so that we expect they won't have, um, you know, any, any sudden problems. Um, also, uh, we, we're um, selecting patients who actually have some weakness so we could measure improvement. You know, there, there are a few things that we need to exclude. So, for instance, very important one for gene therapy if the patient has antibodies against the modified virus, or AAV, that we use for gene therapy, mm -hmm. they won't respond to the gene therapy, and therefore we have to exclude them from the clinical trial. So, so that's a big problem. analyze that at, yeah, at first. Yeah, it's a okay. simple blood test done before, before someone enrolls in the study. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so where were we? Um, so what we're doing is uh, we, we're, we're enrolling these adults with Pompa disease. Uh, they go through all the screening tests to make sure they're eligible. They come to Duke, uh, have the injection. It's a simple IV. Uh, they stay in our experimental research unit uh, for careful observation overnight. They go home the next day. And they come back for a series of visits over the first year. And then uh, for another four years, uh, you know, visits are a little spaced out. Uh, less often. Um, during uh, the first couple of months after gene therapy, we do very intensive uh, safety monitoring. Um, we actually have the patients um, visited at home each week um, to have a home blood draw. And um, now we know that the, uh, the, the gene therapy, which uses this modified virus called AFE, we, we know it's, it's safe. Um, typically safe. We don't, and we know from clinical trials that right now it hasn't caused in any kind of unexpected symptoms in in patients. Mm -hmm. The main thing we're watching for with this close monitoring is any immune response against the gene therapy that would eliminate it from the body. 
And if we see signs of that immune response, we actually have to have, we'll, we'll have the patients uh, take, take immune suppression, uh, you know, a drug that will uh, suppress their, their immune system so that they don't eliminate the gene therapy. Um, it's something that we learned from previous clinical trials that the body would even recognize uh, this, this virus and react to it. But it's something we have to watch for and stop if it happens. I see. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and th- that has been a problem with the enzyme replacement therapy as well, hasn't it, as some yeah. patients develop an immune response? Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and, it, and um, you know, without getting too much into the details of immunology, um, so the immune response against ERT is, is different than against the one we're worried about with the gene therapy. The, the, the immune response against ERT is the body making antibodies uh, against the enzyme, mm-hmm. kind of like it would react to a vaccine. Sure. And only some patients make these antibodies. The patients who have very little or no GAA made in their cells will actually react to the enzyme replacement as a foreign antigen or like a vaccine because they don't recognize it as self and their immune system attacks it like an infection. So anyway, those patients who form a high amount of antibodies against the enzyme won't respond to it. The antibodies will bind up the enzyme in their blood circulation and keep it from entering their muscle cells. It's a very well-known problem now. Um, and uh, so now the, the babies who are at risk for this kind of problem will have uh, immune suppression. They'll actually take uh, several medicines to suppress antibody formation by their body. We can deal with it. Um, it doesn't entirely uh, normalize their response to enzyme replacement therapy. So those patients who form high antibodies really are not going to uh, respond very well to the treatment. So an important part of the gene therapy we're developing is um, it has the ability to suppress those antibodies against the enzyme. And, and the gene therapy not only will prevent antibodies, so it's going to work better uh, than enzyme therapy in some patients, uh, but it will, the gene therapy can suppress antibodies already formed in a patient. Well, we're speculating based on our mouse experiments, but what we've learned in the laboratory is this, this gene therapy can suppress antibodies already formed, so we can think of it as a treatment that might... Uh, treat patients who otherwise were resistant to the available enzyme therapy and not responding to it. That, that's most encouraging. I, I hope that works out. Uh, I'm sure the, the subjects do as well. Yeah. Uh, now, I understand that the, the gene therapy actually uses a single small dose of the AAV uh, virus uh, that delivers this gene to the liver where it produces the, the uh, desired enzyme that's missing in these folks. Uh, how did you develop the, the gene itself that, that goes in there and does, does the job? Yeah. Well, well really, you know, um, we're, we're following on the work of, of other researchers and uh, putting together uh, these materials to, to treat treat pompa disease, but we we took advantage of a couple of things. Um, um, one, uh, we had a gene for GAA from Dr. Chen, who who first produced the enzyme therapy in his laboratory, mm-hmm. and we knew that was a good gene. Uh, and then we had um, AAV vectors, these modified viruses that can deliver a gene, and we also had um, you know s- special control switch to put in that virus that would make the GAA only in the liver. So this is a key, as you mentioned, a, a key advantage for the gene therapy that we've developed. We knew this from early experiments, say in hemophilia and other diseases, that if we make the protein only in liver and make enough of it, that it actually suppresses any immune responses uh, against against the protein. So that's great for pompa disease where immune responses are a problem. The second thing is that making a lot of a protein that can be secreted from the liver and then go to other tissues in the body where it's needed um, gives you a long-lasting way to treat uh, a disease uh, like pompa disease. Um, the, the, this modified virus just goes into the liver cells, sits there quietly, and continues to, to make the protein. The liver uh, produces the protein, sends it into the blood, and then it can be taken into the muscle throughout the body. So, so if we think about a model for how this works, it really takes the enzyme therapy that's available um, and converts the liver 
to a, a, a depot to, to make that enzyme continuously. And um, we'd expect that it would have a better effect than enzyme therapy where we have to inject the protein every week or every two weeks, and then the body clears it away as it does for proteins. Um, so with the gene therapy, the liver will continuously make the protein. It'll be taken up in the muscle, and it's, and it's, uh, it's going to be more efficient. That, that's a very exciting concept. Uh, what were your uh, animal experiments like, and did, did you have a good uh, animal model for Pompe disease? Yes, actually. Uh, so we have uh, you know, what's called a knockout mouse. It's a, a mouse in which the gene for GA was disrupted, and uh, we were able to obtain that from uh, you know, a pioneering scientist named uh, Nina Rabin at NIH. Um, so with that mouse, then we could you know, test the gene therapy um, and and we saw early on um, that if we injected this AV to make GA in the liver at high levels, it could correct the GA deficiency uh, throughout the body. Um, more recently, we've done kind of more detailed experiments to look at uh, what's the dose of gene therapy that's needed to, to treat Pompe disease. So to do that, you can imagine we just uh, treated groups of mice with smaller and smaller doses, and we were able to pinpoint uh, the dose that was effective, uh, the lowest dose that was effective. Um, in an experiment like that, we actually found a dose that was uh, equivalent to or a little bit better than ERT, you know, done in our mouse model. And um, so that's, that's a dose that we would try to administer in, in our early stage uh, clinical trial. And, um, you know, we're, we're just getting to the point of seeing, uh, you know, how patients respond to, to that dose of gene therapy. I see. And, and based on your animal experiments, uh, are you confident that those results will extrapolate to humans? Well, we think so. Uh, the reason that we do is the, you know, the uh, biochemistry of the mouse, um, the, enzyme that, the enzymes that it uses for normal function are identical almost to, um, you know, the enzymes that, that, uh, that humans need. So, and the, uh, the mouse has a, a mutation only in this gene for GIA, which is, you know, just like the mutations that cause Pompe disease in our patients. And we're delivering GIA to replace it. It's a gene replacement. So, you know, I, I like that. It, um, you know, it's, it's a very simple model. And if we're able to extrapolate um, from what we've seen in the mouse experiments, to predict what we might see in our clinical trial, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that we'll see benefits. And how will you recruit your participants? We have um, excellent uh, com- community involvement. So, um, so m- many patients with Pompe disease have come to Duke for their care over the years. Um, and as part of that, um, we, we've built kind of a network. Uh, we're closely uh, cooperating with patient organizations like United Pompe Foundation out of California, and we actually have annual meetings for um, for families with babies with Pompe disease, and then a second meeting for uh, you know older patients with Pompe disease. Uh, these are done in uh, cooperation with the United Pompe Foundation, and we're able to publicize through Facebook, as you can imagine. The patients come to Duke every year. Uh, we we had, a, had a meeting uh, two weeks ago where uh, 75 patients with late-onset Pompe disease, along with their families, came to us uh, for this meeting. And it's really mutually beneficial. Uh, so, um, you know, we have workshops, essentially. Uh, we have our, our researchers, our physicians, um, share information about Pompe disease um, with these families that they might not hear anywhere else. And then we get to meet the families. Uh, we hear about their, um, you know, their problems and their experiences. Uh, it gives us, you know, basically more information to work with to, uh, to, to improve our, our design of our research. And also, Dr. Kishani has a, 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 a really uh, unique clinic where um, a limited number of patients, but a number of patients who come to the meeting are actually able to go to clinic and, and be evaluated by her and her team and, and you know, get, get uh, an expert opinion about how to best take care of themselves. And it sounds like you're totally plugged in uh, and will not have any difficulty with recruitment then. Yeah. Uh, how, many, how many subjects are you approved for? Yeah, so so currently we're we're uh, talking about up to ten. Um, um, we uh, we've actually completed the first group of three, and we're moving up to a next group of of three to five. 
and of course, if things go well, we expand. You know, we'll, we plan to expand. I see. Um, now, this is targeted at late onset Pompe uh, patients. If the therapy is successful and ultimately is uh, approved for use, would it likely be applicable to all Pompe patients, uh, or would the do you think the initial indication would be for late onset only? It, it it should be applicable for for all patients, um, and, and so um, you know the reason we're starting with adults um, is is important. The FDA required that we start with an adult population who you know is less vulnerable, less uh, likely to develop problems, and also can can give consent. Um, so it's it's ethical and wise to start with adult patients, and so another later clinical trial, we're talking about phase one initially, now phase two, um, would would enroll um, young children with Pompe disease, including the children who uh, have had infantile onset Pompe disease. But we, you know, very logically and appropriately want to proceed from the least vulnerable, least at risk population to the population that, you know, is more likely um, to maybe have a problem related to their condition. Um, and the interesting thing is that for those infants, they also have the greatest need because they have most severe symptoms. So we'd expect eventually, though, that, that all patients with Pompe disease could respond to this kind of gene therapy and that it would replace enzyme therapy. So do you already have plans in place or putting it together for that, that next, uh, next phase of the trial? It's in, it's in the planning stage, in this planning. But, uh, you know, so the the phase one is completely designed, funded, and underway. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have to be, you know, planning for the subsequent trial and trial after that. And you better hurry because you've, you've been awarded fast-track status, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the lots, of, uh, lots of encouragement from the FDA, um, and the, the need is great. Um, and I, I, I want to be sure, I mean, you, it may be in your list of questions, Ernie, but I want to mention our, our sponsors along the way. Oh, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're getting there uh, momentarily. Very good, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, though, about uh, how you're able to target this gene therapy to the appropriate location specifically in, in the liver and avoid any systemic effects, which uh, I, I know has always been one of the major challenges facing gene therapy over the years. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really important. Um, so uh, there, there, are, there are two things about the gene therapy that target it to liver. One is that this modified virus, AV, has a very high tropism or, or high likelihood to go to the liver. And so the liver, the liver cells take up AV very readily. So that's easy. We can uh, inject it intravenously in the blood, and that's where it's going to go first, and you know, at the highest in the highest quantity. Um, and then the second thing is this control switch, the liver-specific promoter that only makes the protein there in in, in the liver. So it's and and the, the important thing to recognize is that the advantages for our system are having the protein made in the liver, not made elsewhere. A little bit of the AV will go to other tissues, muscle, brain. We know that. But it's inactive there, and so that's you know those two those two features, both um, AV going mainly to liver, and then it only making GAA um, you know, from our gene therapy in the liver are really key in preventing you know kind of any bad effects from making the GA where it it, it shouldn't be and where it could cause problems. I just want to offer an example then from our experiments. Uh, if we designed this uh, gene therapy differently, so it made GA in all the tissues of the body, we recognized that we had the immune responses and very uh, robust immune responses that eliminated the gene therapy from the tissues. So, so we've seen the advantages uh, of only having uh, liver production, and that's our strategy. That's our, our best approach. I see. Then that is fascinating. Uh, well, Dwight, I'm, I'm always very reluctant uh, on this program to use the word cure. But in this instance, I have to at least ask you, if the gene therapy is successful, might it actually constitute a cure for Pompe disease, at least in some of these patients? Right. So I wouldn't want to call it a cure just, just to be cautious. And, sure. And so we, we know from the biology of, of AAV 
that it will be very, very long-lasting, um, but eventually, eventually, uh, as many years pass, it, it will gradually be lost, um, lost from from the body. So the reason for that is, you know, the AV um, actually is delivering a DNA. Uh, that DNA, of course, makes the enzyme that's missing. But this AAV DNA just sits in the cells, and it's not incorporated in the chromosomes in the cells. So uh, because it's not in the chromosomes, when the cells divide, you know, this AAV is a passenger. It's diluted out. It's, it's not copied, um, and it's gradually lost as the cells in, uh, in the body divide. And, um, you know, all cells eventually divide. We know for the liver it, it's a slow but steady process. Um, so we would expect in the, you know, in the years and decades following this gene therapy treatment that, that the treatment will gradually be diluted out. Um, that said, it, it, you know, could be very long-lasting effect, um, and it would differ, uh, you know, drastically from, from an enzyme therapy that requires weekly injections. So it might still require a sort of a, a booster shot, you know, five, ten years down the line? Yeah, if we could do that. Um, so that brings up the question again about, uh, you know, which, which patients could be treated with, with this AAV gene therapy. So, so once a patient gets the gene therapy, their body does form antibodies. There's no way around that currently. They wouldn't benefit from a second treatment. And there, there are two ways to deal with that. So if we developed a different AAV for gene therapy, and there are multiple types, well, they wouldn't have antibodies against that new type, so we could treat them with this new drug. Mm-hmm. Another way, and, and it, it, it's a goal um, of current research, is to suppress the antibodies against AV that the patient would form, um, and then they could get a second dose from the same gene therapy with the same AV. And that's also really important, that ability to suppress those antibodies uh, to be able to treat all patients, because a number of patients, maybe even up to half of adults, have been exposed to our AAV. They have antibodies already, and as I mentioned, we have to exclude them from mm-hmm. our studies. And even once once our gene therapy is approved, those patients with antibodies won't respond unless we can get rid of the antibodies uh, for their treatment. I see. Well, I, I also understand that you're you're working on uh, drug therapy. Oh yeah, that's 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 another um, line of research and. It's maybe a little bit easier to think about uh, bringing a drug to patients. So uh, we've uh, repurposed um, a certain kind of a drug uh, called a beta agonist. It's a drug that has been used to treat asthma previously. And we're taking advantage of a feature of this uh, beta agonist where it'll increase uptake of the enzyme in the muscle. Um, Actually, it increases the receptor for GAA in in the muscle. Um, So that works you know, very well in um, a number of experiments that we've done, and we've done a clinical trial that we published in the last year. Um, you know, that that will also be an approval process, so it's going to take uh, more work in a couple of years. Um, the interesting thing about the drug therapy um, is that it could help with the response either to enzyme therapy or gene therapy just by increasing that receptor uptake of the of the enzyme in muscle. So you're you're tweaking albuterol. Is that is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So albuterol is a drug that's available in the U.S. and it does have this kind of effect. Really, our, our research is focused on a different drug called clenbuterol that's only approved in uh, Europe and a few other you know areas around the world, not in the U.S. Uh, clenbuterol is more long acting and it has a better effect in pulmonary disease. I see. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, Dwight, we certainly, uh, as you mentioned, want to acknowledge that you and Dr. Kishinani are both participating in a spin-off company uh, to commercialize this product, an entity called Actus Therapeutics. Tell us about that venture. Yeah. So um, now almost two years ago, um, while um, you know, I was writing grants for funding to be able to do the clinical trial, I was also meeting with various companies who were involved in gene therapy, knowing that it does take the involvement of a pharmaceutical company to be able to do all the research needed to get FDA approval and then eventually make a drug available. Mm -hmm. And so during that process, uh, around July of 2017, um, I met with the CEO of a local company uh, called uh, Asclepios Biotherapeutics, or AskBio for short. Right. Um, And um, so uh, that was Sheila McHale. She was interested in our research in pompa disease and offered to do the manufacturing uh, to provide the gene therapy um, through her company because her company specializes in AAV gene therapy. And 
And um, so that pump company, I think we should mention, was uh, launched out of UNC Chapel Hill and, a, you know, very prominent uh, researcher, Jude Somalski, sure. um, in his research. Well, at any rate, it was critical for us to be able to get manufacturing, um, which is expensive and very uh, technically challenging. And so once we were able to um, enter an agreement between Duke and um, Aspio, um, as part of that, we did form a company called Actus Therapeutics. This is the business part. It's in its complex. But at any rate, so Actus Therapeutics was formed to, you know, support a clinical trial and has really allowed us to go ahead. So we've had support from NIH, a couple of agencies called NCATS and NIAMS. They funded the clinical trial. Um, but federal resources, although generous, um, um, are scarce and uh, really not sufficient to do this kind of research. And I don't think we would have had the manufacturing. We wouldn't, really wouldn't have been able to do the, the clinical trial without support from a, from a company. Well, this is certainly the, the ideal model uh, at this point for a business relationship that, that actually gets these therapies out there and available to those who need them. Well, yeah, it's definitely the most effective model, and, and we couldn't do it without, you know, I think ideally we do have uh, some government support and then industry sponsorship. Absolutely. Uh, well, this is Radio in Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Dwight Coburl from Duke University, and we are learning all about some remarkable strides in gene therapy for metabolic disorders. Dwight, before we uh, go forward, I, I want to address the issue of gene therapy itself and kind of zoom out a little bit. Uh, the field went through a rough patch uh, in the late 90s uh, when a trial patient died. Uh, all of us plugged into this remember the, that incident with a, a gentleman named Jesse Gelsinger. Who, and that, that whole uh, brouhaha really seemed to put the field on hold for a period of time. Are we past all of that now? Uh, what has changed? Uh, it, it seems like gene therapy has really come roaring back, uh, and, and maybe some of the mistakes early on have been uh, rectified. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a very tragic situation. And it, it pointed out, you know, several problems, um, you know, with the way things were organized at the time. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, Part of it was a toxicity related to that particular kind of gene therapy with an adenovirus, which is completely separate and unrelated to what we're doing with AAV gene therapy. Part of it was also the organization um, and uh, kind of mixing of uh, business and um, the uh, doctors and researchers involved in the study um, there was a situation of conflict of interest and one person making too many decisions and unable to sort of balance things. So, so since that, another important reform has been to manage this conflict of interest and make sure that everyone who's making the decision is making them in a clear and unbiased way. And that's certainly a current practice, and that's much better managed. So how has it come back? Um, the other thing is that the technology has improved so greatly um, and so these AAVs that have become available actually since then um, have allowed us to do many, 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 um, you know, positive experiments to predict that we would be able to do clinical trials. And then, you know, just skipping ahead, a couple of successes where um, patients really benefited in clinical trials and now uh, a couple of approvals of, of gene therapy treatments has, as you said, really lit things on fire. And now there are many companies entering the gene therapy field and doing clinical trials, and there, there's, there's really a boom in, in the activity in the field. What has been the impact of, of the sort of sudden onset of CRISPR uh, on yeah. all this? A great, great impact in, in uh, research. And so, um, you know, sort of every laboratory is doing experiments with CRISPR. Um, you know, it's it's not quite ready for you know, clinical research, and so um, the the a, a gene therapy with a CRISPR wouldn't be used currently for the kind of uh, gene therapy trial we're doing. Um, and and you know, so CRISPR actually cuts potentially rearranges the DNA 
uh, causes immune responses, and really doesn't have uh, proven safety for uses in, in the body. Uh, but down the road, I can imagine, uh, it's, it's easy to predict that uh, treatment that involves CRISPR or a si- uh, similar technique could permanently repair genes and actually provide more of a kind of a cure for diseases like Pompe disease. So it's in the future. It's just not ready for prime time. Is that something uh, you and Priya and your colleagues are, are looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we're working on these uh, called uh, gene editing techniques with CRISPR and with other other methods. Excellent. Well, we've, yeah. we've delved into that on this show previously, and the gentleman from NC State, who was one of the prominent uh, researchers in the field, uh, called it the CRISPR craze. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, well, you and, and uh, Dr. Kishinani have been studying these uh, diseases like Pompey at Duke uh, literally for decades now. Do I take us back and, and relate some of the historical progression for us uh, in terms of blood test development and biomarkers and development of the enzyme replacement therapy? Yeah, so um, let's see. I mean, the recognition of Pompe disease, for example, um, started with a a Dutch pathologist um, and, and, you know, about a century ago, uh, recognizing patients who had the features of Pompe disease and then really recognizing that it was a unique disease. So it was, it was named after Dr. Pompe. And then uh, the middle of the 20th century, um, some really brilliant biochemists worked to identify enzymes involved in causing these kind of diseases, among them Pompe disease. Pompe disease was the first in a class of disorders called lysosomal storage disorders that involve these lysosomal enzymes. They're specialized enzymes that live in a compartment within the cells. Um, so then knowing about the enzyme, actually genetics followed. Um, DNA technology allowed the sequencing um, or you know, the, the thorough description of the, the gene for GIA, which gave us techniques to um, make a gene, synthetic gene, make the protein in cells. Um, Later, um, we were able to deliver a gene into cells, gene therapy techniques, including cells in a mouse. We had the mice created to have Pompe disease. We could treat those mice. And then the final step before a clinical trial is to do safety studies uh, called PharmTox studies, where we study in a great number of mice, uh, you know, the safety, any, any side effects from a gene therapy to be sure that it would be you know, safe enough for a clinical trial. And then we can look across the field and see that uh, there are a number of these gene therapies being uh, being developed and that overall, um, you know, the, the safety lo- um, looks good. That's it, how we got to today. Okay. <laughs> Excellent summary. I appreciate that. It must be very rewarding, too, from, from where you started to where you are today to, yeah. to see the progression. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and um, you know, so basically, all all this in terms of um, being able to do a clinical trial of gene therapy became possible, you know, since since I started Duke in in, in 1999, and uh, you know, we've we've seen these new methods become available, and we've done our research, and we've been able to move ahead, and you know, and certainly there are there are other groups very, doing uh, very 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 similar research as competition, which is a good thing, and uh, you know, and we hope to develop the best the best treatment for our patients. Now, with the clinical trial that's currently in progress, I understand it started in January. Um, I know you can't say too much about it, and I want to be sensitive to the uh, kind of restrictions on what you can talk about Mm -hmm. at this point. But can can you give us any kind of preliminary indication? I mean, is the is the trial going along smoothly? Yeah, I mean, I can say that it that it that it's that it's going ahead. You know, that just in in general terms, Mm -hmm. and and so. uh, you know that tells us that um, you know there there aren't, for instance, safety concerns that would that would stop it, and that's really very important. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. stopping rules. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, we'll have to check back in six months, a year. Sounds like what a good you, plan. Okay. Yeah. Well, Dwight, how did you become interested in this particular area of medical research? Uh, take us back. What journey brought you to where you are today with yeah. this? 
Yeah. Well, well, um, you know, very, very briefly, um, when, uh, when I applied to medical school at, at, uh, at Mayo, they had a program, uh, which was a combined MD PhD program. Um, and so it, it's, it seemed very intriguing, interesting. I was just uh, starting out in research. Uh, so in that program, I started to work on hemophilia. I've mentioned that already today. Mm-hmm. Um, and hemophilia is just, uh, excellent model in terms of understanding, uh, genetic disease. Um, after that, with my interest in genetics, um, I went ahead into a pediatrics residency and then uh, a medical genetics fellowship and really specializing, um, you know, lots of years of training. Yeah. Um, um, in, my, in my fellowship at University of, of Washington, there was a lot of gene therapy activity, and so it was logical to, to want to do some gene therapy research, and I started working on gene therapy for hemophilia, learned more about these metabolic disorders like Pompa disease. Then coming to Duke, it was a natural fit to start working on gene therapy for Pompa disease with Dr. Chen. I see. Excellent. Well, it, that sounds like uh, something that has kept you very much engaged over the years. Yeah, yeah. And, and we've had, I've had really unique opportunities at Duke. Um, we have, um, you know, fascinating research ongoing. We have resources. We have a, a, a research team with lots of varied expertise, and so it takes places like this really um, to develop these these treatments for rare disorders. is really as a labor of love. Um, you know, it's been it's been a great opportunity. And how much of your time do you spend actually uh, working with directly with patients and in, in yeah. treatment? Yeah, yeah. So about forty percent. It's uh, also kind of a variety of activities. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, a director for a diagnostic laboratory that runs tests for genetic diseases, and then I have a metabolic clinic, and you know, we we see patients who either have a genetic disease or you know, being evaluated for one. So it's you know it's about uh, about forty percent of my time that I, I spend in clinical, and um, then I have uh, you know a, a really dedicated uh, group of scientists and technicians in the laboratory who do all the work, and um, you know I'm I'm just there to to provide ideas and guidance. Well, that sounds uh, a little more modest than you should be. Well, I can't go in the laboratory <laughs> anymore, so oh, <laughs> I rely on my team. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Well, Dwight, it's been a great pleasure having you today on Radio In Vivo. You and Dr. Kishnani are doing some tremendously interesting and important work, and we wish you the best of luck for continued success. Thanks, Ernie. Much appreciated. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. So join us again next time for Radio and Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy the show, we ask you to support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and make a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely exclusively on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. We thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.